Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. It's two weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. Moscow's forces are still far from victory, but their grip is tightening around many cities, and Ukraine's people are suffering. Yeah, we come, come under a strike there. Look, saying this is where the civilians are, where they're trying to get out of safety and a bomb in it. So it's going out of order. They shouldn't be doing that. But even now, still these civilians aren't safe until they get further back, probably about a mile. So the rounds are still coming in. Former Royal Marine turned filmmaker Emil Gesson is documenting events in and around Ukraine's capital. He'll tell us how prepared Kyiv is for what could be the decisive battle of President Putin's war. And Michael Clark will talk us through the big picture across Ukraine. Despite the fighting, British weapons are still getting through to Ukraine's forces and we'll take a closer look at the missiles being used to destroy Russian tanks. The actual missile itself uh, makes up the whole javelin. That has a computer inside of it, so it just locks onto the target and he destroys it. And they say, know your enemy. So who is Vladimir Putin and what drives him? He was born to two survivors of the siege of Leningrad. And I think it's important to know that the siege of Leningrad really colored a lot of perceptions about what it meant to be Russian. And I think it probably affects Putin's understanding of the need for the Russian people to struggle and survive in order to be great. It remains unclear how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is most likely to end. But given Vladimir Putin's stated aims, there's a reasonable chance that victory or loss of this war will depend on who controls the capital, Kyiv. And so we start there with filmmaker Emil Gesson, a former Royal Marine commando who's been in Kyiv for just over a week. So the situation's been getting worse here because several thousand civilians have now fled the country. At the moment, we've got the Russian forces that are on the doorstep of Kiev to the north and to the west, and they're moving up from the east. So really, they're trying to surround the city. I was up in Irpin just a couple of days ago, tried to get there back today, but it was too dangerous, where there's constant shelling going on and attacks, and then counterattacks by the Ukrainian forces. So the situation in Kiev is very tense, that people just waiting, expecting for when the Russians are going to turn up and continue the bombardment. And Irpin, that you mentioned, is about 13 miles from the centre. It's suffered horrendous bombardment. I just want to play a clip you posted on social media from there. Let's move! Up, move! We hit the butt again, take cover. Emil, that was a close shave for you. What happened? Yeah, so we were at a checkpoint where all the civilians were getting extracted. So in between the firing, which was quite consistent, um, the soldiers were allowing civilians to cross the bridge as quickly as they can, come to the coaches and get out of the area. We pushed up to a building just through the village when we started coming under mortar attack. This mortar here, was there was four of them were fired and just across from us, probably about 100 metres away, four civilians were killed, two of them children. Now, you've experienced plenty of incoming fire before as a Royal Marine, but when you're not surrounded by all that military capability, that must feel different. Yeah, well, I've made three feature films in war zones in Iraq, Syria, in Ukraine also, and in Artsakh between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, 45 Days to Fight for a Nation. So I'm quite used to now carrying a camera rather than a rifle. But really, against indirect fire, there's nothing really I could do. And a lot of people question, go, do you carry weapons? And I'm like, of course I don't. I work in the media. I cannot be um, cross-contaminating my work with weapons. So, yeah, you feel vulnerable, especially in areas like that, where you don't want to be um, putting pressure on the soldiers in case you get injured. But... 
to tell the story, we have, we have to get to the front and to areas like that, because mainly we weren't going there for the fighting, we were going there to show the humanitarian crisis that's massive across Ukraine at the moment. And tell us about the heart of Kiev. How much is it experiencing Russian bombardment? Yeah, so the actual centre of Kiev hasn't come under indiscriminate bombings, come under targeted attack like the TV tower, uh, military bases, more weapon than guided weapon systems. It's more on the outskirts where there's more indiscriminate bombing that's currently going on. But like I was saying earlier, it's only a matter of time. People here just worried and waiting for the, the attack to start creeping into the centre. And how well defended does Kiev seem to be against the expected Russian attempt to take it? Martial law has been implemented here in Ukraine, so all men between the age of 18 and 60 are now volunteered to sign up to the military. What they're doing is they're taking up weapons and becoming volunteer battalions. And throughout the city, it's barricaded. There's armour, there's blocking roads, there's checkpoints everywhere. Even just before we came on, one of the soldiers came over to me at the checkpoint here, saying, you've got to be careful what you can film here. Um, it's very much old school, like the D-Day um, hedgehogs, the iron crosses everywhere, tyres. The improvised and even just up the road from here, they've used barricades with pianos and just stuff from the household. So very much Kiev is turning into a bit of a bastion here that if the Russians do come into this city, it's going to be a fierce fight. And how much of a difference do you think that volunteer force can make? Yeah, the volunteer force here will make a massive difference. As if the Russians do attack the city of Kiev, the, the military on the outskirts will move closer in. And then what will happen is all the volunteers have got positions where they've been digging in. We've got to remember Kiev is um, Ukraine's an old Soviet country, so there's lots of tunnel systems here. So people are knocking through the tunnels. Um, so if they do come into the city, they can use them to resupply, get men and ammo across the city. But really, yeah, like I'm saying there, is that Kiev is very much ready for an attack. And a week ago, you told us you'd spoken to Britons who were fighting for Ukraine in Mariupol. Have you been in contact with them since? And do you know what the situation is like there from them? <laughs> Yeah, so I know a few of the guys that are fighting in Mariupol um, where they've come under extensive fire. Um, at the moment, there's no communications with them. Um, the telephone comms are down. There's no um, 3G, 4G. So no one's really heard from them for, I think, coming on five days now, actually. So, yeah, uh, everyone's hoping that they're still alive. There's a lot of volunteer fighters that crossed in from Hungary and from Poland. I haven't seen many of them hit up here in Kiev and towards the front line. Most of them are still being held in Lviv. Um, which is still eight, eight hours away, where apparently they're doing training, getting all their equipment sorted before they push up into the volunteer battalions. But I'll be keeping my eyes open, looking for these guys. And do you get a sense of more British people coming to join Ukraine's forces? I wouldn't say necessarily more Brits than anyone else. I think more coming from the old Eastern Bloc, such like countries like Poland, Hungary, Lithuania, um, Latvia, Estonia and stuff. Um, but definitely there is a I'm in a signal group with about 60 fighters. Um, they're all talking on there constantly. And it seems to be there's about 20 to 30 Brits that are in that group that are coming over. Um, there is a few here in Kiev, I've been told, but I haven't been able to locate them yet. Emil Gesson talking to us from Kiev late on Wednesday. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here. Michael, looking at the whole of Ukraine, how much progress have Russian forces managed to make in the last week? Well, certainly not as much as we thought. <clears throat> I mean, they've got three lines of advance and all of them are now quite stalled. There's the one that um, obviously Emil was talking about there, I mean, trying to surround Kiev, uh, and they are making very hard work of it, moving in more more smoothly a bit from the east at the moment, but from the northwest and the south, this is the famous convoy that's now been static for seven, eight days now. 
Um, but they, they will surround Kiev, and, and that's, that is now happening. So that's one line of advance. The other line of advance, second one, is was north from Donetsk and Luhansk to link up with forces coming from the area of the northeast of the country. They've made that link up, but not very convincingly, because they haven't taken any of the cities. So they tenuously hold the territories around them. And then the third line of advance is out of Crimea, where they've tried to build this land bridge between the Donbass region and Crimea. And that's, again, it's tentatively held. But Emil was saying there that, you know, in Mariupol, that should have fallen within hours. On day 15, they're still fighting in Mariupol. I've no idea how, but they are. And to the west of that, to the west of, of Crimea, this is the real big push in the south. They are going for clearly Odessa, but they're held up at Mikhailov. Mikhailov is the gateway to Odessa, and they've been repulsed from Mikhailov on at least two occasions that I know of, and maybe three. They've taken the airport back a couple of times, so they're not making much progress there. And so, essentially, on all three fronts, the Russian advance has more or less ground to a halt. And, of course, mm -hmm. the one we're all looking at is the one that surrounds the capital, because that's now the big next, as it were, psychological phase of the battle as, as to how will they handle it and what will the Ukrainian government do. And Michael, it's not quite a stalemate, but it doesn't seem to be shifting hugely. Can you see what might make a decisive change for either side? Well, the Ukrainians can't change much because they're extremely successful with their counterattacks and they're able to do a bit of strategic raiding. Uh, the Marines, uh, only this week, were able to destroy 30 helicopters outside Mikhailov, um, where the Russians had parked them. They did a classic uh, commando raid. They broke in and destroyed 30 helicopters, uh, plus a lot of other equipment. So they can do things like that, but they can't mount a counteroffensive. They can't split the Russian forces in half or surround them or throw them out of the country. So they can only do what they're doing, which is tactically very good, but strategically they're still obviously on the defensive. The Russians can bring in more forces, which they are doing this week as we speak. Um, uh, low loaders are trundling from the Far East with equipment and, and uh, soldiers on them. And a lot of that equipment is civilian equipment. They, it looks like a bit of a motley army on its way to reinforce. And they are trying to persuade or get ready the Belarusians to come in. And we know from intelligence, the MOD have confirmed this, that a lot of Belarusian soldiers are deserting because they can see that they're getting ready to go over the border into battle. So the, um, the Russians are trying to reinforce. So they obviously, at least at one level, intend to grind this out by by pouring in good old Russian style more numbers uh, mm. to, in a sense, reinforcing failure, but pushing through with sheer numbers on these three fronts, Kiev, the northeast and Odessa, to some sort of decision in the next week or 10 days. And how concerned should we be at Western warnings of a possible Russian chemical or biological attack in Ukraine? It has an air of the intelligence-led warnings before the invasion, trying to diffuse the pretext for false flag operations. Yes. I mean, two weeks ago, I would have said that was a pretty remote possibility. I mean, surely they wouldn't do it and, and surely they wouldn't need to do it. But yes, they, they may think they need to do it now, and, and it's plausible because of everything else that's happened. Because the temptation, if you can't take a city, is to use chemical weapons to clear it, which is exactly what happened in Syria. Um, and the point about chemical weapons is that it, it kills people that, in, that are subject to it, and it, everybody else leaves. They have to. And so uh, forces can then move into a deserted area. Um, so there's a big temptation to use chemicals, and I wouldn't now put it past the Russians because I think there's a degree of desperation in the situation that they now found themselves in. There have been repeated attempts at ceasefires to help with the devastating humanitarian crisis. How much difference have they made? 
Not much, not enough. Um, I mean, Mariupol is the place that needs a humanitarian corridor and they failed on successive days to get one going. It's interesting, you know, the one corridor that has worked is out of Sumi. Who is in Sumi? Lots of foreign students, including a very high proportion of, of Indian students. And Modi of India, to his shame, will not condemn this, uh, this uh, invasion, just like uh, the Xi Jinping in China. So India and China are, are refusing to condemn this action. Um, and Modi in particular is quite keen to stay close to the Russians. And so I wonder, I can't prove it, but I know there's a lot of foreign students in Sumi. I know that a lot of those foreign students are Indian. I think there may be a, an element to this, to the one corridor that has worked, that has got a, a sort of an international diplomatic dimension to it. Michael, stay with us. Well, despite the fierce combat in parts of Ukraine, it seems the UK has been able to continue getting weapons to Ukraine's armed forces. The number of anti-tank missiles delivered has now reached 3,600. They are credited with playing a significant part in Ukraine's fight back. And Simon Newton has been watching British troops using them in Eastern Europe during training with Lithuania's defence forces. Fire. For the Russian military in Ukraine, it's become a fearsome adversary. Well, these are the next generation light anti-tank weapon, or NLAW as they're known. They're a uh, shoulder-mounted portable fire-and-forget missile uh, with a range of up to 800 metres. Now, the UK has supplied these to the Ukrainian forces, and it's these that are proving so effective against Russian armour. We've come to the vast Pobradi training area an hour north of Vilnius. An anti-tank squadron from the Royal Dragoon Guards is here training with the Lithuanian army. This exercise was planned before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but for former Soviet states like Lithuania, it's gained even greater importance now. Major Will Room commands Black Horse Troop. Yeah, so obviously they, they aren't actually concerned. They have been for a number of years. And can indeed, this was why the Enhanced Forward Presence concept was set up uh, back in 2014, kind of after the Wales and Warsaw conferences. Um, and kind of over the past few years, we've seen that that kind of demonstration uh, of all nations kind of through the NATO alliance and our positioning on NATO's eastern flank has been critical to kind of underpinning that kind of Article 5 kind of, uh, kind of reassurance that we have. Lithuania borders fellow NATO members Latvia and Poland, but also Belarus, the Kremlin's stalwart ally. It also neighbours the Russian enclave at Kaliningrad, and there's long been concern that President Putin may try and punch through a route known as the Savolki Corridor, effectively joining the enclave to Russia and cutting the Baltic states off from NATO nations to the west. This squadron of British troops are normally based in Poland and have driven here through the Baltic cold in their jackals and coyote vehicles to take part in this exercise called Hunter 22. As well as the Enlaw, they're also using the Javelin, a more complex and powerful armour-piercing weapon. Trooper Josh Booth. It's highly effective against next-wall armoured vehicles. It's a good bit of kit. It's two separate parts to it, so the clue is obviously the sight. That's what we use to actually look through the targets, and it has uh, different functions, so we can see by daytime, nighttime, and it has thermal imaging as well. And then the actual missile itself uh, makes up the whole javelin. That has a computer inside of it, so it just locks onto the target and destroys it. Forward! Military experts say satellite imagery suggests around 950 Russian vehicles, including 140 tanks, have been destroyed in Ukraine, with portable missile systems like these being used to great effect to blow up convoys of armour. The US government estimates Russia's also lost anywhere up to 3,000 troops. 
The UK is promising to send more weaponry to Ukraine, with joint exercises like these designed as a display of both support and firepower. For these Baltic states, the collective strength of NATO never more important. Simon Newton reporting from Lithuania. Michael Clark, the Defence Secretary is finalising plans to send Starstreak portable air defence missiles, which could be carried by Ukraine soldiers. How much difference could they make? Uh, well, they could make a big difference. Um, I mean, as your report then you know, established, the end laws uh, and the javelins are be, have been very effective. In fact, our, our information is that they've been 90% effective, that is 90% of hits, which is very high. And so they're really obviously doing well with that against um, tanks. Now, the thing is that the Russian Air Force has been flying low. They're so um, worried about the anti-aircraft defences which the Ukrainians now have. They've been coming in, coming in in ones and twos, flying at night, flying low. The thing about the Star Streak is that it's an extremely good weapon system against low-flying aircraft. It's extremely accurate. It's very fast. Mm. gives the aircraft no time to react. Problem with it is that it can't just be given to troops with you know a little bit of training they do need to train for some time on it which raises the question as to whether the um, op orbital which you know britain's training of 22,000 troops i wonder whether mm. it, it it included star streak it wouldn't be much point sending star streak to troops who don't have the time real time to train on it over a number of weeks so it makes me wonder if some of them are pre-trained on it because they'd only need to operate a few star streak batteries for the russians to get to know that they existed and it would bother them even more because then even flying low wouldn't help so i think there's a degree of psychology uh, at play here because in itself you know star streak to troops that are already fighting is probably not a lot of use star streak to troops that have been pre-trained on it is extremely useful Putin can stop this war and Putin needs to understand what a tragic mistake he's made and what a catastrophe he is making for both his own country and Ukraine. The chief of the defence staff speaking at the weekend. Note he said Putin can stop this war, not Russia, Putin. It's a distinction quite often also made by senior Western politicians. If it really is about the one man, then we need to understand who is Vladimir Putin. Putin was born in 1952 in uh, what was then Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Lynn Hartnett, who's Associate Professor of Russian History at Villanova University in Pennsylvania, has been telling me the story that lies behind President Putin and his actions. He was born to two survivors of the siege of Leningrad. His father had been disabled um, in the war through an injury early on. Um, Putin had an older brother who actually died during the siege of Leningrad. Um, and I think it's important to know that um, the siege of Leningrad really colored a lot of perceptions about what it meant to be Russian, how uh, critical the war called the Great Patriotic War was in Russian memory. And I think it probably affects Putin's understanding of uh, the need for the Russian people to struggle and survive in order to be great. He allegedly was a bit of a thug um, until he discovered judo and then began applying himself to his studies. He wound up eventually getting a law degree from uh, Leningrad State University. And once he graduated, he joined the KGB. Um, he was stationed in Dresden uh, in what was then East Germany. And it was from there that he witnessed really the collapse of the Soviet bloc um, and went back to Russia, devastated in some ways by the loss of prestige that he witnessed uh, from his Soviet empire. 
And how much of that early life in those years after World War Two, with a family scarred by that conflict, as you described, how much has that shaped who he is now, do you think? Given the fact that Putin has such a personal relationship to some of the worst aspects of World War II, um, through his fa- family's experiences, um, surely have colored his understanding. It's, it's ironic, though, now that we're seeing um, what seem to be the planned sieges of Ukrainian cities where civilian populations are being denied food and fuel and water um, uh, that seem to mimic what Putin's own family experienced in World War II. And he had a, a pretty rapid rise through the Kremlin from the mid-90s to become president in 2000. What kind of a president did he seem to be at the start? A reformer or someone wanting to take Russia back towards communist days? Um, that's a wonderful question. And I would say, first of all, his rise through Kremlin politics, it was meteoric. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how he came to go from being a deputy mayor um, to the prime minister and president of Russia in less than a decade. You know, so many people say, how has Putin changed um, over time? And looking back on it, it doesn't seem like he has as, as, as much as we might expect. You know, Putin uh, moved from being deputy prime minister to prime minister under Boris Yeltsin in August of 1999. And the way he really made his name in that moment was uh, through his bombing uh, campaign of Grozny in Chechnya. Um, and by all accounts, or most accounts, I should say, uh, it seems that the bombing campaigns the re- were the result of false flag operations um, and the bombings of apartment buildings in Russia itself. Um, he used those bombings to go against Grozny with just ferocity. And that just becomes the theme by through which he, he pursues uh, his rise to power. He used the threat of terrorism from the Caucasus to enhance his authoritarian rule. He uh, restricted the media. He limited NGOs. He put in place foreign agent laws. He he bombed and blockaded Georgia. He bombed Aleppo. You know, he, he murders his political opponents and, and poisoned them. One of those was uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who was uh, then candidate and then president of Ukraine. And Yushchenko said something very interesting. I think it was in the wake of the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in, in 2018. And he said that Europe needs to wake up to the fact that uh, Putin is using medieval means and pursuing a medieval policy in the 21st century. Um, and I think for so many of us, uh, we weren't paying close enough attention. And do you think he really just wants to recreate the Soviet Union? I think he wants to recreate an old Russian empire. Uh, I think it's, it's, we fall into this idea that it's the Soviet Union because of his KGB roots. But since the Russian annexation of Crimea, Putin's championed the, the unity of the peoples of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus on the basis of a shared culture and civilization and human values. And so he seems that he has these geopolitical motivations to expand his sphere of influence. But at the same time, he harbors this more emotional drive, almost a sacred mission to make Russia the spiritual, cultural and political center of civilization to counter the liberal ideology of the West in a way that seems more akin to rulers like Peter the Great or Catherine the Great or even 19th century czars. Of course, this war is controversial in Russia. Do you think it will be Putin's downfall? And if so, how might that actually happen? 
Oh, that is the million dollar question. Um, and I wish I knew the answer to that. In many ways, what we're seeing play out is unprecedented. Um, people talk about whether Putin will be overthrown, whether he will fall from power. And despite the fact that Russia has a long revolutionary and radical history, um, there's been, in the modern era, just a few instances of the people taking to the street to effect uh, change. I mean, we saw revolution in 1905 uh, and in 1917, um, and incidentally, both came um, in the midst of uh, Russia's wars that where they weren't faring well. Um, the question becomes how many people will take to the streets? We've seen an unbelievable demonstration of bravery on the part of Russian citizens protesting in cities across uh, Russia. Um, I think in order to see something monumental happen, those numbers will have to increase exponentially. There's questions about how long the Russian military will endure what they're going through and what they're perpetrating upon the, the Ukrainian people. Um, and that's, that's the unknown. The answers to those questions are, are anyone's guess. Um, I just pray that there is some sort of resolution um, that brings peace in the, in the near future. Lynn Hartnett, Associate Professor of Russian History, and Michael Clark, if this does turn out to be the end of President Putin, what are the chances of Russia's military playing a part in ousting him? I think they'll be quite central to it, actually, <clears throat> the military and the security services. Because on the one hand, he, he's railing against the, the three security services, you know, the FSB, which is the old KGB, and the SVR, which is like our MI6, and then the military intelligence, the GRU. Um, he's railing against them and they um, are under enormous pressure and they don't like what they're hearing. And the military, the Russian military, are extremely unhappy. They didn't know what this was all about. Most of them were not properly consulted, even senior officers. And there's an awful lot of chatter on the vloggers, these ex-military, retired military, just like ours. They chat to each other and a lot of people are picking up, up this stuff and, and they are very unhappy. <clears throat> and the fact is that the Ukrainians seem to have an awful lot of good intelligence and the suspicion is that some of this intelligence is coming from the Russian military, who are appalled by what's going on. So we think about, you know, what might happen if there is a coup, if there's the Julius Caesar um, uh, scenario waiting for Putin out there somewhere. Um, it, it won't be Shogu, the defence minister, because he's very like him. And it won't be Lavrov, who's mm. you know, thrown in his lot with Putin now for good and bad. It won't be Peskov, who's the spokesman. It won't be Petrushev, who's the head of the National Security Council. These are all Putin-esque people. But Gerasimov, the chief of the defence staff, seems pretty unhappy. And um, uh, uh, Mishustin and Medvedev, you know, present and previous prime ministers, don't seem very happy. So... Um, I think as and when something happens, the military will be intrinsic to it, even if they don't, as it would cast the first blow, um, and the security services will. And it has to come more or less from inside. So the Julius Caesar scenario is that somebody strikes, not necessarily physically, but somebody strikes politically, and whoever mm -hmm. strikes first has got to get it right, because there's no prize of coming second in political assassinations. So somebody strikes first and wounds him, and then everybody else pitches in. And if it happens, that's the way it will be. And that might take place in the next two months or the next five years. But I'm fairly certain that it will take place. 
Now, after putting its nuclear forces on high alert last week, this week Russia sent nuclear submarines to the Barents Sea for exercises. Though a Western military official said that after broadcasting their locations for all to hear, the subs swiftly sailed back to port. This is what the chief of defence staff has to say about concerns President Putin might resort to nuclear weapons. We, we need to be very clear and we need to be calm and responsible and not react to threats from President Putin. So we have our own defences, we have our ability to respond, we monitor Russia very, very carefully, so we are ready and prepared and very clear of our responsibilities and our ability to respond. But what is our ability to respond and what are those defences in the event of a nuclear strike being launched towards the UK? Former First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West. Well, to be quite honest, the, the main defence we have against a nuclear strike is the deterrent aspect of it, which is that whoever strikes us will get struck back in, in tenfold, so to speak. We don't have an ability within this country to shoot down incoming ballistic missiles of the type that are fired from, say, Russian uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, their ICBMs and, and the like like that. Once they get up above the atmosphere, they will break up normally and split into a number of warheads um, and trying to intercept those. Um, we don't have the capability of doing that. And to be quite honest, um, with the collapse of Reagan's Star Wars program, they don't really have the ability to do that in America either. Now, the, the Russians um, certainly built up a large anti-ballistic missile force around Moscow, which they saw as their most important area to protect their government some decades ago. Uh, some of those missiles are quite capable, but basically we've designed our warheads uh, with decoys and all sorts of things so that we can guarantee penetrating their missile shields. So, you know, although they might think they can shoot some down and they might be able to shoot one or two down, but most they won't be able to and most will be decoyed and won't work. Um, and so the strike will happen. But what about the NATO missile defence shield? Um, the, there is not a NATO missile defence shield that will stop the intercontinental ballistic missiles. It can shoot down short-range missiles, scuds and things like that. Well, you can't guarantee it. There's a thing called a KP, which is a figure of guarantee of killing things. And the KP levels for these sorts of systems are not hugely high. But these, these don't get ICBMs, particularly once they split into their various targeted warheads. And what about our systems like Sky Sabre or the anti-missile weapons on Type 45s? Well, we've been doing a lot of trials to be able to shoot down ballistic missiles, and there's no doubt the Type 45 have that potential. Um, but to pretend that if there were a major exchange of nuclear weapons between the two major powers, that that would be able to help us would be uh, fooling oneself. So in that light, if uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile were launched, you're saying we have no chance? If one, one, if one were launched there's a possibility of that one being intercepted by one of the systems that the Americans or others have got, but they won't launch one. If there's a, a launch, that would be, you know, this would be uh, mutually assured destruction is what I'm talking about. And if it were to come to the worst, how would we, the public, know an attack was on its way? We no longer have the four-minute warning sirens of the 1980s, do we? No, we don't. Effectively, we stopped doing all of that. Um, and we don't have, I remember at that time, you know, all the, all the mums were taught things, weren't they? One in, one in five knew what to do and whitewashing your building and all these sorts of things. 
I think the decision was as the as the yields got bigger and bigger that there was not I think this was a government decision there was not much point in continuing with a a plan for defense exactly what the plan is now I have to say I I don't know I fear that it would not be a very um comprehensive and cleverly thought through plan but I might be wrong you never know I might be wrong of course, when you were in charge of the Royal Navy, the early to mid-2000s, it was the post-Cold War era. Europe was pretty peaceful. But still, how much did your role in charge of the UK's nuclear military capability weigh on you? It was always the most important um, part of the Navy's programme to keep one submarine on patrol um, and initially at immediate readiness to fire its weapons 365, 366 days a year in a leap year. What we did do as things got better with the Russians. And indeed, I, I remember I, as commander-in-chief, went and took the salute of the Russian Northern Fleet. That shows how different things were at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, but as things got better, we, to try and lessen this tension and the risk of war, we took our nuclear force off immediate readiness. So our nuclear submarines were not at immediate readiness to fire their weapons. Sadly, I don't think the Americans or the Russians have done that. The one thing I would like to say is that... I have no doubt that possession of nuclear weapons is important for our nation. I think if you look at the situation today, can you imagine if the West had gone for uh, nuclear disarmament themselves, what Putin would do? I mean, Putin would have no hesitation, no hesitation in using a nuclear weapon, that man, at all. And so I think possession of nuclear weapons is, is actually extremely important. Admiral Lord West there. Well, let's get a final thought from Professor Michael Clark. Michael, what is the best hope right now for the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians besieged and bombarded by Russia? I think the best hope is that they have fought the Russians to a standstill. Um, they have shown that they're not going to give in as a nation. And so they live to fight another day. And uh, President Zelensky um, at the very beginning, he made his own life, his own survival synonymous with the life and survival of an independent Ukraine. And here we are on day 15 of the war. And I would say there's a reasonable chance that President Zelensky will be around to see the end of President Putin. Michael Clark, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. But this week we finish with our own final thought. While the overall horrors of war do not discriminate, the experiences of men and women in Ukraine right now are different in some ways. Men of fighting age are expected to stay in the country and, if necessary, fight for it. It's largely women and children who have become refugees. The Disasters Emergency Committee has warned of a crucial need to protect women and girls who it says are at increased risk of sexual and physical violence. It also says 80,000 women are due to give birth in Ukraine in the next three months to bring children into a country torn apart by war. And so we leave you this week with the voices of some of Ukraine's women, some risking their lives to get their children to safety, others enduring the horror of Russia's bombardment, women who are helping lead the country and fighting for it. No light, no water, no everything, and uh, we, we can't live in our houses right now. Sometimes we, uh, we thought uh, that uh, this is the last uh, second of our life. Uh, it was very scared. The consequences of not taking the decisions which are needed at this particular moment, 
is the lives of Ukrainian people. Unconventional decisions and unconventional thinking is absolutely essential now. So I can't say that I'm a refugee. Actually, I'm quite a prosperous woman with a flat, but now it's absolutely not important. What is important is that my children are here. Unfortunately, we are bombed every day, every night. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy peace. It's really valuable. Don't take for granted what you have now because it's so vulnerable. We just didn't want to sit at homes and uh, thinking of each other, having no ability to help, to protect, to care about each other, and really helps us to just to fight for our lands and for our country. I will protect him, he will protect me, and we both will protect Ukraine, our land.